0: Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, February 6th, 2021. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Today we are going to present Truth 100 Proofs that the Israelites were White, and this is Part 26 of this series. In our last presentation, we began discussing particular passages in the epistles of Paul where certain terms are mistranslated or misunderstood and also adversely affect the interpretation of the scriptures throughout the entire New Testament. There are many more mistranslations of these mistranslations in Paul's epistles than there are in all of the other New Testament writings, and certainly because of the nature and purpose of the epistles themselves. Once again, while there are many more mistranslations in Paul than what we shall present here, we will only focus on those which concern race, nation, and the scope and purpose of the gospel. So once again, we have two threads here with us to help this make this discussion. Good morning, two
1: Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So um, we're going to start with saints, right? And and that might seem just an irrelevant one or not so important, but it but it actually really is because if you understand that all of us, the children of Israel, are the saints, and uh, nowadays people believe that a man, a, a pope, chooses who is a saint and who isn't. He can just make one on a whim. And uh, if they later discover that someone was anti-Semitic, well, then they can revoke the status of saints, right? And and just that the whole idea is ridiculous. So um, here, hopefully, we can clarify and show that um, when Paul addresses all the saints, he's really just saying all the children of Israel, right, right Bill?
0: Absolutely. And absolutely. It's the children of Israel who were sanctified and being defiled. Oh, okay. And, and, and this goes into this discussion also, even though I hadn't really put it in this manner. At the very end of this presentation, I'm going to make a short discussion of Peter's vision in Acts chapter 10. The children of Israel were defiled. They defiled themselves, and they sold themselves into sin. So they are no longer, quote-unquote, saints, as long as they're in that sinful state. But Christ cleansed them on the cross, and that's why Yahweh told Peter, do not consider common what the Lord, in the King James Bible, what the Lord has cleansed. So, who did he cleanse on the cross? And and as I mentioned at the end of this presentation, that should really be another proof in itself as we examine the Old Testament passages that he promised to cleanse the children of Israel. Now, if we read throughout the Old Testament, we see this word, saints, applied to the children of Israel in the Old Testament. And the Hebrew word is kodesh. And and we're going to explain that here. And and it means separated. The children of Israel were separated. So once you receive the gospel of Christ, you're expected once again to separate yourself from the world. and, And then you can be once again considered a saint. If you're one of those children of Israel. So where Paul used that word saints, that's who he's referring to. So I think that this is an important discussion as this word is just as poorly understood as the words Gentile or Jew. So Paul addressed his epistle to the Romans, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called and the King James Version has called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Romans chapter 1, verse 7 from the King James Version. And there, in that version, we see that the words to be are added. They are in italics. Now, the King James translators didn't put all the added words in italics but they put many of them in italics. So when you see words in italics in the King James Version, that means that they are not represented in the Greek and the translators added them in. So we see these words to be added in italics, which means that they are not in the original texts. The translators made a lie when they added those words because Paul never used the word saint in such a context that somehow someone could become a saint. That's not how he used the word. For example, in his epistle to the Philippians, he addressed it in part, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, and this is the King James Version once again, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. And while we won't discuss the true meanings of the words bishop and deacon here, we see that those who have positions of authority in the assembly are among the other saints, people whom Paul had already considered saints as they were living. In that context, the King James translators could not add the words to be they couldn't do it they would have had to add three or four words to the text in in order to match what they did to 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 um equal the meaning of their adding of the words to be in other places such as romans 1 7 they would have had to add several words in that context so they didn't add any (laughs) to their credit there would be a whole phrase of of italic words right but there aren't paul considered those people to be saints as they were living so paul ended that same epistle the epistle to the philippians in its last chapter in the closing verses he ended it by saying in part salute every saint in christ jesus the brethren which are with you which are with me greet you i'm sorry All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. Now, Paul was a prisoner in Rome. He had already seen at least one trial there, which he mentions in that epistle. And he had evidently won converts to Christianity, even in the household of Caesar, whom he referred to as saints. Where he said, salute every saint, he was asking his readers to greet all of the Christians in Philippi on his behalf. These are all average everyday Christians whom Paul considered to be saints, not the artificial saints designated as such by the popes of the Roman Catholic Church. They cannot make saints, for the express reason that they are supposedly celibate. There's only one way to make saints. They come from the loins of Abraham through Jacob. The true saints are those of the children of Israel who have sanctified themselves in Christ and separated themselves from the sins of the world. The word for saint in all of these contexts is Hagias. And Liddell and Scott define "hagius" primarily as devoted to the gods, although in the Bible we would say God rather than gods, right? Because we're not pagans. That was the pagan Greek definition of the word. Then Liddell and Scott go on to follow the church definitions of the word, sacred or holy, without explaining that primary definition any further. In truth, if you read the ancient Greek literature, the Homeric literature, the tragic poets, and things like that, in truth, what is sacred or holy is something which has been devoted to a god, and I will get to that momentarily. The Hebrew word for holy throughout the Old Testament is kadash, Strong's number sixty-nine eighteen. Kadash and it's spelled in English, it's spelled Q-A-D-O-S-H. So, Kadash means sacred or set apart. You can't understand that today. You have to put yourself back into the ancient pagan religions to understand that, or into the ancient Hebrew religion from the time of Abraham forward. This word, kadash, appears as saint in the King James Version in Psalm 106.16 and Daniel 8.13. But more often, the cognate word, kodesh, it's spelled, Q-O-D-E-S-H in English, kodesh is Strong's number 69.44. That is the usual word which very frequently appears as saints in the old testament now the brown driver briggs hebrew lexicon primarily defines kodesh as apartness or holiness sacredness or separaten- separateness and i'll explain the the relation of apartness and separateness to holiness momentarily But the Greek equivalent of kodesh and kadash is hagios, this New Testament word, which when it's spoken of people, is translated as saints. Now, if it was spoken of objects, it would be translated as holy or sanctified. But of people, it's translated as saints, usually in the New Testament and the Old, in the Septuagint. So, the Greek equivalent of kodesh, which means apartness, holiness, sacredness, or separateness, is hagios. And that is how these words, these Hebrew words, were translated throughout the Septuagint. And hagios more fully means set apart for the purposes of a god, according to Thayer's Greek-English lexicon. The ancient Greeks set something apart or dedicated something to a god by placing it upon an altar in the temple of that god. Now, the temple grounds were also considered set apart or holy or hagios as it was a a patch of land dedicated to the god and the temple that sat on the land so the land itself was holy right and and that's the ancient pagan perception of these words in all of the classical literature when you set when when you wanted to gain the favor of a god you would go to the temple of that god and you would have um, some gold or, or silver or whatever was valuable to you. And it would be just like people today write checks and hand them to the Roman Catholic Church, right? And and hope to get prayed for by, by the church and hope to be honored by the church. Well, the ancient Greeks did the same thing. They grabbed some gold, a gold object, perhaps a shield or something that they won in battle or some treasure And they would bring it to the temple and they would place it on the altar. And it became the property of the god of the temple. And it fell under the authority of the priests. Now, not only were objects dedicated in that manner, but people were also dedicated in that manner. A lot of parents had children that they couldn't afford to support, they would take the children and turn them over to the temple. And the future of the child would most likely be as a prostitute for the temple, making money for the temple. But the temple would have to raise the child. And, and that was, I guess that was sort of sometimes an ancient substitute for adoption or abortion. If parents couldn't afford a child or, or if they didn't like that child or, or didn't rejected it for some reason. But You had all these temple prostitutes in the ancient world. Now, a lot of them were also won over in war. They were war booty and dedicated to temples. They were the children of conquered cities and states, right? And they would be dedicated. So there were different sources for temple prostitutes. So you would dedicate something on an altar and it became the property of the temple. And that's important to understand that that's how the ancient world operated because when abraham placed isaac on the altar at the command of yahweh abraham was surrendering his authority over his son and dedicating him to yahweh where isaac became the only man ever to dedicate ever dedicated to god by the explicit will of god Paul explains in Romans chapter nine that the seed of the promise is that seed which was born of the promises made to Abraham, Sarah, and Rebekah, who gave birth to both Jacob and Esau. But Paul went on to further explain that Yahweh God hated Esau and that the Israelites are vessels of mercy, while the Edomites are vessels of mercy of destruction so that's the significance of isaac's being placed on that altar and of course yahweh chose to supply a goat or a stag i don't even remember what it was precisely in 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 order for abraham to sacrifice the animal in place of isaac and and that itself i believe it was a ram i'm sorry and, and that in itself was a foreshadow of Christ, that, that when, when um, the children of Israel had all transgressed the law and were liable to death, that Yahweh would supply himself as a replacement to die on their behalf. That, that is symbolic of the sacrifice of Christ. But when Isaac was placed on the altar, he didn't have to be killed. As soon as he was placed on that altar, which Abraham had dedicated to Yahweh at his command and placed Isaac on the altar at God's command, Isaac became the property of God. And everything in his loins with him would be dedicated to God. So that's very significant and it's very important to understanding the future relationship between Yahweh God and the children of Israel. So Paul addressed his first epistle to the Corinthians, in part, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. And once again, the translators added those words to be into the into the text, and they don't belong there. They should not have been added because the people that Paul was addressing were already saints while they were living as Christians. And as an aside, in that passage, that, that's um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, that word sanctified is hagiazo. It's a verb that's the equivalent of hagios. So, we have hagiazo, them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called saints. That's hagios. So, it's the same word appearing twice in, in that verse, once as a verb and once as a noun. So, we read in the second epistle to the Corinthians, where Paul addressed it unto the church of God, which is the assembly of God, the Ecclesia, which is at Corinth with all the saints, which are in all Achaia. Achaia is the region of Greece where Corinth was at that time. It, it was a political boundary, right? So they shift. And his intended readers are already saints, But once again, in that context, the King James translators could not add the words to be, so they left them out with all the saints, which are in all Akahia. Paul's already identifying these people as saints. But where they do add the words at the beginning of 1 Corinthians and at the beginning of Romans— the impression is given that a Christian may become a saint, contrary to the truth that every Christian keeping the commandments of Christ is already a saint. Paul, using verbs of the present tense, is addressing his epistles to those who were called saints, to Christians. In the present tense, I don't know if you have anything to reply to that.
1: Yeah, the 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 way they say it, it really gets rid of the whole racial aspect, right? That um that we already are saints, and, and what what you said about the pagan holy uh, ground, is the same now. With the churches, right? They're considered uh, holy ground, and and the popes that they they're considered holy and. Uh, if, if you uh, think your house is haunted, a, a pope, he will uh, come and, ex you know, ex, do an exorcism rather than uh, praying to Christ. And if you want a blessing, you'll even pray to the saints, you know, people they've just chosen. And, you know, I could go on, et cetera, but you, you can see it's all just pagan and it's all just a lie. Right. And um, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's all just complete nonsense what they're teaching
0: but when the when the Roman Catholic Church developed it, that this is um it's very clear to me in history but it's not written or recorded in this manner simply because the the roman church itself wrote the history and they discarded a lot of literature from early christian writers that they did not agree with so we will never see that literature. And these so-called early Church Fathers, whom they preserved, they don't agree with them either, but they are probably the least damaging to things that the, the, the Roman Catholic Church accepted from the 4th century. And if you study the, the development of Roman Catholicism, you'll find that the primary or the leading lights the church fathers that it followed the most closely, even though it really doesn't follow them either, were the Alexandrians. Clement of of Alexandria, Origen, even though it doesn't really follow Origen either and denounced him as a heretic, and Eusebius of Caesarea, they were all from the same line of thought from Alexandria. And the concepts... Replacement Theology, the um, Gnostic ideas or or the Neoplatonist ideas and concepts of words like spirit and seed and father and children, they all came out of Alexandria. That is not apostolic Christianity. To Paul of Tarsus, his kinsmen were his kinsmen, according to the flesh, they weren't mere believers of any race at all, which is how Roman Catholics view things where your family are your believer, co-believers That's not true. Your family in scripture came from if you're an Israelite, your family came from the twelve tribes of Israel, period and and their true descendants of Abraham meaning that they're racially pure and not bastards period so all of these concepts and ideas were adopted by a class of pagan roman priests who suddenly became christian priests but they remained pagan and they kept all of their pagan practices and started to describe those pagan practices in christian terms and you there can is... see
1: um uh, sorry, I'm i was sorry. just gonna say a lot of them wavered didn't they and they had to be convinced No, come on be a christian we'll make you a bishop just, you know be a christian just give up um the pagan <laughs> title and you know you can still have power and because you've got influence you can bring all your followers over to the catholic church and we'll become one big powerful church
0: well well i mean the entire Development of Roman Catholicism is only a restructuring of the old Roman Empire under a Roman Pope. That's all it is. The College of Cardinals replaced the Roman Senate. Rome was was dead. If you read um, Procopius and the description of the Byzantine wars against the Goths, which were... which the objective was to reconquer the parts of the old western empire that were conquered by the goths in procopius he described the city of rome as having only a few dozen families left rome was rome in the west was wiped out after the gothic wars it was done i mean the roman people themselves a lot of them were still there not in the city though they fled so, when Justinian had reconquered portions of Italy and Iberia and North Africa for the, the Byzantine Empire, he made a law and stated that the Christian Bishop of Rome would be the head of the church he would be the foremost bishop of the church eventually those bishops of rome who became the, the the head of the church according to justinian's law their power eventually eclipsed the power of the byzantine emperors themselves but the structure of their government and what was just a copy of, of the old Roman government, a restructuring of the old Roman government. It was based on that model of, of an emperor and and a senate and and a priesthood that was subver- subservient to that pope. They were pagan priests. They were never Christian priests. I mean, some of them may have been former Christians, but they were pagan priests. They had adopted Christianity, but they never changed their old, their old ways. True Christianity doesn't leave any room for a professional priesthood. There is none. The ministers and, and bishops, if I have to use that word, of, of the real Christian assemblies come from within the assembly and are appointed by the appointed by the people of the assembly, and answer to the assembly. They don't answer to anybody else. So that that's a long story, but I have papers written on that subject. But that is not amenable to an empire. Empires can't have that. Empires need control from the top down. They need imperial control. So the. The Catholic Church restructured Christianity in the form of the old Roman Empire, just with different titles. You had a pope instead of an emperor, and and you had cardinals instead of senators, but it was basically the same structure. If you search all the early church fathers for the term Christian priest, you look for Christian priest in Justin Martyr, Clement of Rome... Clement of Rome is late 1st, early 2nd century. Justin Martyr is mid-2nd century. Um, Origen is mid... I'm sorry, Clement of Alexandria, I think, is early 2nd century. Origen is mid-2nd century. Tertullian is a little later in... I'm sorry, 3rd century. Tertullian is a little later in the 3rd century... So we have all these 3rd century writers, and I should have said 3rd century for Clement of Alexandria and, and Origen and Tertullian. You have all these writers for 300 years almost that don't use the term Christian priest. Wherever they use the term priest or priests, they are either referring to pagan priests or to the Levitical priesthood. They are not referring to Christians. Unless they're quoting First Peter, that would be an exception. But First Peter is not advocating Christian priests. Peter's epistle is advocating the concept that the children of Israel are a nation of priests, meaning that every man is a servant of God, which is how Christians should look at priesthood that we're all priests, we are all servants of God. Our purpose should be to serve God. How? The way he tells us to serve him is to serve our own people. So we serve our own people and we're serving God. That's the concept, that's the true concept of Christian priesthood. Not this artificial concept that these priests rule over us and regulate our lives, which is basically Judaism. It's Judaizing. The idea that these Pharisees had to control the people and and regulate every aspect of their lives is repeated in the Roman Catholic Church. And it came out of the schools of Alexandria, where former Gnostics and Neoplatonists became Christian. And Clement of Alexandria and Origen were former Gnostics and Neoplatonists who never really got rid of those Gnostic and Neoplatonic ideas. So that's a digression, but I I think that was necessary in, in order to explain why the Roman Catholic Church has so many pagan practices. It's because they were basically pagans from the beginning. They were always pagan. They never really changed their ways. They maintain their pagan rituals, their, their pagan concepts, and, and they put a Christian facade onto them. Even their trinity is pagan. I don't know if you have anything to add to that.
1: No, no I think that, that explains it all, right?
0: I hope it's clear enough. It could be established, but you'd have to read a lot of early Christian writers or at least search through them. Okay, First Corinthians chapter 9 is the first real um, mistranslation or misunderstanding we should probably discuss here. And Paul says from verse 16, and this is the King James Version, For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for, the, for necessity is laid upon me, Yeah, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, a dispensation, and then there's three added words in italics, of the gospel is committed unto me, what is my reward then, verily, That when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge. That I abuse not my power in the gospel. Now, in order to make this passage complete, the King James translators added three words to verse 17, which are of the gospel. Whenever there are so many words added to the text, it is evident that the translators may be adding their own ideas to the text. And doing that, they very frequently pervert the intended meaning. In fact, in this passage, to me, even the punctuation does not even make much sense. So, this verse in the Christogenian New Testament reads... Therefore, if I announce the good message, that's what gospel means, it's a message of good news, it is not a subject of boasting to me. In necessity, it is laid upon me, since woe to me it is if I would not announce the good message. In other words, if you have this message, you had better announce it. For if I do this readily, I have a reward but if voluntarily I had been entrusted with the management of a family, what then is my reward? The Greek word oikonomia is primarily the management of a household or family. The word nomos is law, and nomia would be a reference to one who keeps the law, and oikos is house, a house or a family. So oikonomia is the person who manages the household or the family. That's how Liddell and Scott define oikonomia. And the most literal meaning here is the most sensible, as we can understand Paul's message without adding any of our own words so I'm going to cite six or eight passages for support of this concept. And the first is Amos chapter three, verse two, where Yahweh says to the children of Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. So if people are being reconciled to God, they could only be the people that he knew beforehand, beforehand and he only knew the children of Israel. So let's move on to the next citation is Isaiah chapter 52 verses 6 and 7. And this is a messianic prophecy. Therefore, my people shall know my name. My people shall know my name. The people who were his people back in the days of Isaiah shall know my name. Therefore they shall know that in that day that I am he that does speak. Behold, it is I. And now the direct correlation to the gospel, where in the next sentence it says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings good tidings, or a good message, as we translate the word gospel in English, that publishes peace, that brings good tidings of good that publishes salvation that says unto zion the people that had been put off from god hundreds of years before the gospel that says unto zion thy god reigneth that's an announcement of jesus christ as king matthew chapter 10 verse 6 and and there are plenty of other Old Testament passages which uphold our position, but we'll jump to the New Testament. Matthew chapter 10 verse 6, Christ said, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Matthew chapter 15 verse 24, but he, meaning Christ, answered and said, I am not sent but unto or except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Acts chapter 26, verses 6 and 7, the words of Paul. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. Paul's words again in Acts chapter 28, verse 20. For this cause, therefore, I have called you, to see you and to speak with you, because that for the hope of Israel... I am bound with this chain. Now, Paul in Romans chapter 9 described those who are Israel as his kinsmen according to the flesh, not according to their belief. That idea is ridiculous and is found nowhere in scripture, except for a couple of misinterpretations of things that Paul wrote in Galatians. Israel is his kinsman according to the flesh in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 was written only a couple of years before Paul made that statement in Acts chapter 28 verse 20, and I don't think he changed his mind because Acts chapter 28 verse 20 is written only one year before Paul said, before Herod Agrippa II in Acts chapter 26 that he was judged for the hope of the promises made to our 12 tribes. So Paul never changed his mind as to what Israel was. Jumping to James, chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. He didn't write to anybody else. He didn't write to 12 tribes and the Gentiles. And then Revelation chapter 21, verse 12, describing the city of God. And it had a great wall and high and had 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and names written thereon, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. If you're not from one of those tribes, you're not getting in any of those gates. But most significantly, from Hebrews chapter 8, Paul is making a direct quote from Jeremiah chapter 31 and the promise of the new covenant. And he says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And it's that same word, oikos, where we see here that Paul was entrusted with an oikonomia, which is the management of a house, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. In other words, if you're not one of the sons of those fathers with whom the covenants were made, then you're not a part of the house. You can't be not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they continued not in my covenant and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. That was the captivities and the deportations of Israel. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, the oikos of Israel after those days. Sayeth the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, not to anybody else, and they shall be to me a people, and nobody else can cut themselves in line, because there's no room for them in any of this language. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying no to the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least to the greatest. And all of these passages and many more, perhaps hundreds more, served to show that the message of the gospel of Christ was intended for a particular house or family, which is the ancient family of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel.
1: So, so Bill, uh, what Paul was saying was, uh, with all this knowledge, he shouldn't just be isolating or living in the woods. He has a duty, and he was even chosen by Yahweh himself to go uh, spread all this knowledge to his household, his, his brothers, his sisters, his family, essentially, is his duty.
0: Well, absolutely. And, and Paul, all of the other apostles, if you pay attention to the gospel, were simple fishermen, except perhaps for Matthew, who was a publican. So Matthew probably had a better education, but he stood out from the others. In that respect, all the others were simple fishermen or carpenters from Galilee. And I'm assuming that the brothers of Christ probably weren't fishermen, James and Jude. They were probably carpenters as Christ himself was a carpenter before he before it was time for him to begin his ministry, right? Because his father, his um, adopted earthly father, was a carpenter. So they, you generally, men followed in their father's vocation. So the sons of Zebedee, what which are the, the lesser James, the younger James, and the apostle John, they were fishermen. Peter was a fisherman. They came from the shores of Galilee. So, fishermen and carpenters did not have classical educations at that time. They simply didn't. Now, Matthew may have had some degree of education because he was a publican, but Paul of Tarsus was taught the law at the feet of Gamaliel. That doesn't mean Peter and John didn't know the law, because all of the Judeans heard the law every sabbath day in the synagogues so they were well acquainted with the law but paul was much more educated in the law having been trained at the feet of a famous lawyer as he describes in in i, I believe it's um his epistle to the galatians and gamaliel is the same lawyer that had convinced the Judeans to let Peter and John go without punishment in Acts chapter 5. So Gamaliel was indeed a wise man. He, Paul learned the law. He learned the, the scriptures from him, evidently as a young man. But Paul was raised in Tarsus. That's why he was called Paul of Tarsus. And his family were Judeans, obviously, who were living in Tarsus. So they must have sent Paul to Jerusalem for that education. So they must have been wealthy in order to be able to do that. And most um, poorer families would have to have their sons work and help support the family, which is what Peter and, and, and James and John were doing. They were fishing as young men. John was a very young man when he he was probably the youngest of the apostles. I'm I'm sure he was when Christ had chosen the 12. So Tarsus at the time, and and this is in the classics, it's mentioned by Strabo of Cappadocia. And Tarsus was a center of learning, that was probably, I forget if Strabo said it was the second or third center of learning in Greece, in the Greek world of his time, behind Athens and perhaps, I don't remember exactly how the quote goes, behind Alexandria. But Tarsus was one of the most notable cultural centers in the Greek world in the first century when Paul was raised. So he must have been exposed to classical learning and classical literature, because if you read his epistles, and I've identified probably half a dozen places where Paul was actually taking adages and sayings that were common in classical literature, not in the Bible, and, and he was using them. He was citing them. He was citing Greek poets in several places. He even told the Athenians, one of your own poets had said and quoted. At, at, um, he told the Athenians that, but he also said that to Titus in relation to the Cretans. So Paul understood. In Acts chapter 17, he referred to your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. And and That is true, and he was citing classical literature generally, but then he cited it more specifically in regard to the Cretans. And while the exact citation, I believe, is lost, I think it's generally attributed to a poet called Callimachus, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Is that the Cretans are always liars?
0: yes that, that's and one. he
1: was a cretan so it's a paradox
0: <laughs> well well yes it is it 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 is a paradox that's a famous paradox in in ancient greek literature I think I could be mistaken. I think it was Callimachus, but I've written on it, but I can't remember everything I've written. I've written 20,000 pages. I'm not bragging. I mean, that's just the way it is, right? I have copious notes that help me put all that together from my reading, but I can't remember it all. That's just life, right? So, so that there are other places where Paul had cited epimenides or, or used sayings that are from Aeschylus, and, and there are several places in Paul's writing. Epimenides, I'm sorry, not Aeschylus, but Euripides. Paul used a line from Euripides, from Erotus. Um He was probably referring to Eratus in the book of Acts when he said, your own poets. And from Epimenides in Titus. In reference to the Cretans. That's from Epimenides, not Callimachus. That is another line I believe I identified that was similar to something Callimachus had written. I also believe that he took, he borrowed from Livy, from Xenophon, and from Cicero. And all of this is in my commentaries on Paul, and also from Menander, that the Novum Testamentum Grecae recognizes that Paul quoted from Aratus, Edimenides, Euripides, Menander, and probably Heraclitus. So that, that's probably six or eight, at least, Greek classics. And doing that, Paul shows that he is familiar with classical Greek literature. Being familiar with classical Greek literature... Paul must have understood history very well. And that is what made him uniquely qualified to bring the gospel of Christ to the lost and scattered sheep of of the ancient captivities of Israel. Because Paul would have known from that classical literature where these people came from. Not that it's spelled out, but when you take the classical history and put it together with scripture; it's extremely clear. And sometimes so he it must is must have read out. a lot of
1: what we've read about Aeneas, um, you know, the Trojans and the Romans and <laughs> the Dorian invasion, the Heracles. He must have read all that as well, right?
0: Right. He must have. And that's Paul was the first Christian identity teacher. I have no doubt. I think I have a podcast with that title actually. Or a talk I gave in the Fellowship of God's Covenant People. That was my first public talk back in 2012. That Paul was the first Christian identity teacher or Christian identity minister, I may have used. I don't remember exactly how I termed it. And that's why Paul was uniquely, uniquely qualified to understand and to teach what we call today Christian identity, because that's what he was teaching. So as the King James Version has this word dispensation at 1 Corinthians 9.17, and then it adds words of the gospel to try to have it make sense, there are several other words which Paul may have chosen to more clearly convey such a meaning. If he meant to refer to the gospel now, Liddell and Scott list words such as, or definitions such as, husbandry and thrift as alternate meanings of oikonomia. And among others, Thayer adds stewardship. None of them fit the context here, although at times they do where Paul used the word elsewhere. A house is an oikos, and a steward. The man who manages a house is called an oikonomus, which is a steward. But only if by steward we understand the definition of the term, that it describes someone who manages a house, which represents the abode and affairs of a family. So the word describes the office of the wicked steward in Luke chapter 16. But Paul used it again in reference to his ministry in Colossians chapter 1, verse 25, where the King James Version has only dispensation. And I will read a longer passage from the Christogenean New Testament from Colossians chapter 1. Now I rejoice in these sufferings on your behalf, but I substitute for those deficiencies of the, afflict- of the afflictions of the anointed with my flesh on behalf of the body itself, which is the assembly. In other words, Paul, saying the anointed, not Christ there. That should be the anointed. Paul isn't substituting for Christ. Paul is saying that he's suffering by spreading the gospel. He's suffering in his travels. He's suffering on behalf of the assembly, the anointed, the people of Christ of which I had become a servant in accordance with the administration of the household. That's the fullest way to translate that word oikonomia, because that's what it refers to. With the administration of the household of Yahweh, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of Yahweh the mystery of which has been concealed from the ages and from the races. It's not from the generations. Ages and generations would mean the same thing. That's nonsense also. But now has been made visible to his saints, to whom Yahweh did wish to make known what the riches of the honor of this mystery are among the nations, which is the expectation of honor anointed in you whom we declare admonishing every man and teaching every man in all wisdom in order that we may present every man perfect among the anointed. He's not trying to present every man perfect who is not of the children of Israel. Now, that translating that word Christ, as the King James Version has it, that's a whole different Topic, that's a whole different subject. We're focusing on this word oikonomia as the management of a household or family. And there Paul references the administration of the household of Yahweh as we have interpreted it. And that interpret interpretation of oikonomia is not without precedent in scripture it certainly isn't. It's the meaning of the word. In the Septuagint, it appears twice in relation to a man who had the stewardship over the house of Judah. In Isaiah chapter 22, where from verse 19, the word of Yahweh, and we're quoting the Septuagint, the word of Yahweh first speaks to Samnus. Samnus is Shedna in the King James Version, who is a wicked steward, And it says, and thou shalt be removed from thy stewardship, which is oikonomia, and from thy place. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Chelchius, and I will put on him thy robe, and I will grant him thy crown with power, and I will give thy stewardship, or oikonomia, into his hands... And because he has the oikonomia, it says, and he shall be as a father to them that dwell in Jerusalem and to them that dwell in Judah. So likewise, on account of his own stewardship, Paul was considered a father in that same respect, even though he would have rejected father as a title. But the King James Version of the New Testament never translates oikonomia in its primary sense, even though it is very clear in the Old Testament prophets and from the scope and purpose of the gospel that it should be understood in that simple and literal manner. If we understand the meanings of these underlying words, then the identity message is much clearer in Scripture. Scripture. But if we just say stewardship or dispensation, we're not transmitting the meaning of the the full meaning of the word. So it's easy to sneak replacement theology in the back door or some other purpose of the gospel. It's easier for the denominational churches for the traditional churches to get away with lying about the purpose of the gospel if they don't translate these words with their full meaning. So with that consideration, likewise in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 2, in the King James version, we read, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you word. However, we will read that same verse with the surrounding text from the Christagenian New Testament. For this cause, and I'll start with verse 1. For this cause, I, Paul, captive of Yahshua Christ, on behalf of you of the nations, meaning those nations descended from Abraham in Romans chapter 4, if indeed you have heard of the management of the family, that's oikonomia, of the favor of Yahweh, which has been given to me in regard to you. Seeing that by a revelation, the mystery was made known to me, just as I had briefly written before, besides which reading you are able to perceive my understanding in the mystery of the anointed. He's not talking about Christ here. He's talking about the people, which in other generations had not been made known to the sons of men as it is now revealed in his holy ambassadors and prophets by the Spirit. Those nations which are joint heirs and a joint body and partners of the Promising Joshua Yahshua Christ, because not all nations are joint heirs and a joint body and partners. Only the nations which descended from the children of Israel are. That's the purpose for all of this language. Through the good message of which I have become a servant in accordance with the gift of favor of Yahweh, which has been given to me in accordance with the operation of his power. And the mystery to which Paul refers, which endured for many centuries, was the fate of the twelve tribes of Israel, the identity of the nations in relation to the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. The identity of the nations which descended from Abraham and how those tribes would be reconciled to God as He had promised them in the words of the prophets throughout the Old Testament. That was Paul's task. That's why he didn't identify the Athenians as Israelites. That's why he did not identify the Lycaonians as Israelites, didn't say a thing to them about reconciliation or covenants or Jesus. He only spoke to them in relation to God, the God that created them and their obligation to seek after him since they are also his children. But the children of Israel were told that they would be blind in their captivity, but that they would be called out of that blindness, as it was the purpose of Christ, in part, as he declared, and as he quoted from Isaiah, to open the eyes of the blind, which was prophesied in those same chapters of Isaiah. So while we have already discussed three passages from 1 Corinthians in other contexts in this presentation, we should discuss them briefly here in this context, because they also establish our assertions concerning the words hagios and oikonomia, and even concerning that word christos, which Paul very clearly used at various times, and so did the apostle John, to refer to the people that were anointed by God, and not simply to christ himself i don 't know if you have anything to add to that
1: yeah, I just had a little digression um, in terms of the stewardship um, that the parable Christ gave of the stewardship uh, you, you know I understand it 's just a parable, but is there also a link that where um, Cain was born? Adam kind of adopted him, so, so in a way he became his firstborn, and, and we've discussed it before, the princes of the world, all his descendants, and where Christ said the stewardship has been removed, um, would that be uh, Jacob, who which means the supplanter? he's taken the stewardship back, and we would now be the heirs of the world? Is is there a link there? I, I know it's just a parable as well, though.
0: Well, well, right, you're talking about the parable of the wicked, wicked steward. Yeah. And the stewardship would be removed from him. and, and that, that yeah, you know, that may indeed, and, and very much seems to be representative of how these Edomites and, and these Sadducees that were high priests, which are almost certainly Edomites, how they were basically stealing and robbing the nation blind. And they were making bribes to the Romans in order to keep the favor of the Romans and to the Herods in order to maintain the favor of the Herods. So yes, I, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. It's simply a parable. It, it, every parable has multiple aspects from multiple angles. They all do. So, if we, if we understand... These meanings of these words, saint, anointed, and, and we'll probably talk about that word anointed more when we get to the epistles of John in this series on mistranslations and misunderstandings. Saints, anointed, and oikonomia, which is the management of a household. <coughs> Paul is actually managing a household. And, and Paul used that term in Hebrews. I have to find this because it's, it, it's not in my notes. Paul used that term in his epistle to the Hebrews or used a very similar term comparing Moses to Christ and saying that Moses was faithful in all of his house. That's in Hebrews chapter three, who was faithful to him that appointed him as speaking of Christ, right? As also Moses in all his house. And he's making a comparison between Moses and Christ. But Moses was basically the, and, and that word for house is oikos, once again, referring to the families that the family of of the tribes of the children of Israel, Moses was faithful in all his house. Moses was the steward over the house of God in the Old Testament. So Paul is explaining now that Christ is the steward over the house of God. But Christ isn't present as Paul's bringing the gospel to the nations so Paul is saying that he is given this stewardship over the house of God in order to bring it the gospel and, and to bring it back to Christ, to the, this ministry of reconciliation, which he had. So it's the same concept, and it's no different. The relationship of Paul to the children of Israel during the time of his ministry is the same, basically, as the relationship of Moses to the children of israel during the time of his ministry and that is the same as the relationship which christ will ultimately assume for himself over the children of israel because he is the true shepherd
1: yeah moses was trying to keep him under the law and paul's doing the same but just bringing loss uh, to christ right
0: Right. And and we see again in Hebrews chapter three, verse five, and Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant. Paul always considered himself a servant for a testimony of those things which were spoken, which were to be spoken after. But Christ as a son over his own house because he is God incarnate, whose house we are. In other words, the house belongs to him if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. So that's the stewardship that Paul's referring to. It's the management of that same house. The house never changed. It's the children of Israel from beginning to end. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul said, moreover, brethren, writing to Corinthians, those saints at Corinth and all Akahia, right? <laughs> Meaning the environs of Corinth, the land around Corinth. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized under Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all did eat the same spiritual meat, and all did drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ, because Christ is the physical embodiment of the Spirit of God, of Yahweh. So, it was the Spirit of God, or the Holy Spirit, that was the rock in the desert that was the means by which the children of Israel had water and sustenance in the desert, well, that rock was Christ because Christ is also God and the Holy Spirit. They're all the same God. So, that rock was Christ. And that's a direct reference to the Corinthians and the fact that their ancestors were in the Exodus. And then in chapter 10, verse 7, we read, Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written. The people sat down to drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, meaning don't race mix, as some of them committed and fell in one day twenty and three thousand, or three and twenty thousand. That is an admonishment not to commit race mixing, as their ancestors had committed race mixing. And 23,000 of them were killed in one day. And if we go back to Numbers chapter 25, that's what Paul is referring to, except there's a discrepancy in the numbers because in Numbers chapter 25 it says 24,000 were killed. Judeo-Christian priests will dwell on the difference in the numbers, but won't mention a damn thing about what was meant by the fornication. Further on, in the same chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, what say I then? That the idol is anything, or that that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? But I say that the things which the Gentiles, and that should be nations, it shouldn't be Gentiles, the things which the nations sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that you should have fellowship with devils. And I skip no, I didn't skip a word, a, a verse there. I'm sorry. ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. so. I have a clarification there, because I should have cited a couple of verses sooner, and I just read from 1 Corinthians chapter 19 through chapter, from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 19 through verse 21, but I'm going to go back, and I'm going to read verse 18. Behold, Israel, after the flesh, are not they which eat of the sacrifices, partakers of the altar? And I should have read that first. And then Paul goes on a digression in verse chapter 19. I'm sorry, chapter 10, verse 19. He goes on this digression and says that the idols really aren't anything, okay? But he says, Israel after the flesh are not they which eat of the sacrifices, partakers of the altar. Well, where it says Israel after the flesh, he's referring to the same exact people where he says the things which the nations sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils. He's not changing the subject. There's that peripheral remark, or, or I should call it a parenthetical remark, in verse 19. So we have Israel after the flesh in verse 18. Are not they which eat of the sacrifices, partakers of the altar? He's talking about pagan sacrifices. There aren't a bunch of Jews running around Corinth, sacrificing at pagan altars. That's not the context of Paul's epistle of of this chapter. The context is that he's speaking of the nations around the Corinthians. Behold, Israel after the flesh. Now, that term, after the flesh, is the same term, Israel kata sarka where the king james had translated katasarka as according to the flesh in romans chapter 9 verse 3 where paul said my kinsmen according to the flesh those who are israel and here in 1 corinthians chapter 10 verse 18 we ha- we have behold israel katasarka that same phrase but it's after the flesh it clearly means according to the flesh just as it is translated in romans chapter 9 verse 3 so israel after the flesh in verse 18 is israel according to the flesh romans 9 3 same phrase same greek phrase has to mean the same thing so this is israel according to the flesh that are eating sacrifices dedicated to devils but i say the things which the nation sacrifice they sacrifice to devils and not to god so we see paul explain to the corinthians <coughs> that they're that they are descended from moses that they were in the exodus that they shouldn't race mix as their ancestors had race mixed, and that they are those nations that are practicing paganism in Europe. Those nations that the Corinthians must have known who Paul was writing about, that they were Israel according to the flesh. They were actual Israelites, and they also had ancestors who were with Moses. Once you understand all these simple things that are spelled out in Scripture or these simple meanings behind the various Greek words of Scripture, words like saint and household or or steward, which is the management of a household, and hagios, And these other terms that we've discussed, once you understand that, this is a perfectly clear message where Paul is taking the gospel of Christ to real genetic Israelites that were alienated from God at a much earlier time and sent off into captivity. And this is where they went. Now, some of these Israelites had departed by sea and recolonized places in in Europe long before the Assyrian captivity. They were still Israelites.
1: I'm just looking at the translations. They they try and swing it as though consider the people of Israel. Don't they sacrifice it or, or think about the people of Israel? So, so, again, they're trying to circumvent it. That, that's quite crafty, the way they did that.
0: Yeah, I'm sure they have teams of Jews at every seminary figuring out how they're going to translate this New Testament text to make it seem like the Jews are really Israel. But Paul's not talking about Jews. He's talking about pagans. The, from the Jewish perspective, If you want to call those people in Jerusalem Jews, then those same Jews would have to admit that they're sacrificing the pagans at the temple in Jerusalem, because that's where the Jews were sacrificing. It's very clear in Scripture that the Judeans scattered abroad were still going to Jerusalem three times a year for the feasts in order to keep that law. And Paul mentioned going to Jerusalem for the feast quite often. And we see the apostles in Christ in Galilee were always anticipating going to Jerusalem for the feasts, the feast that the law requires. They weren't going there to sacrifice to the devils. They were going there intending to keep the law of God. Paul wasn't talking about the, the, the sacrifices in Jerusalem. He was talking about the sacrifices being made at the pagan altars of the Europeans. So they get twisted any way they want it. But they're only creating lies. And, and that's why we have Christian identity. If they weren't lying, we wouldn't need to be here.
1: And um, I, I know we spoke about it before, but, um, you know, Corinthians were Dorian Greeks and uh, so much of Greece were Dorians, right? Many of the city states and uh, obviously most famously the Spartans and Macedonians. So, so do you think this letter could be written to pretty much any of them, essentially, because they're the same race? well you know dorian greeks
0: well well it would apply to pretty much any of them yes the things in this letter to the corinthians except for the yeah you know a lot of this epistle is specific to things happening in the assembly at corinth where they had some problems but these general concepts of these epistles to the corinthians would would apply to any true dorian greek yes but they wouldn't apply to Ionian Greeks, which is why when Paul addressed the Athenians in, in Acts chapter 17, or when he addressed the Lycaonians earlier, I believe in Acts chapter 14, that's why Paul didn't speak any of these things to them. He spoke to them at a different level because they weren't descended from the Israelites. So he only spoke to them as he would speak to one of the people of the other Genesis 10 nations, because that's who they were. And Paul knew the difference. And and his speech at Athens and his words to the Lycaonians proves that he knows the difference. (coughs) He only spoke to them in relation to God, their creator God, and that they were his children. They were also his children. This brings us to the second no, I'm sorry. I have to discuss this passage in First Corinthians chapter sixteen, verse twenty two. I don't know if you have anything
1: to add. No no that's fine. We can This is where they don't translate it deliberately to hide the meaning right.
0: Yes, absolutely. Why would they not translate this term? Or, or they, when they do translate it, they get it wrong. Or they have it in the marginal notes that it's wrong. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and verse 22, the King James Version leaves certain words untranslated. And it says, If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha, Now, if this was translated properly, we would all know that Paul was anti-Semitic, right? That he was a Jew hater or a Nazi. The Christoginian New Testament has, if anyone does not love the prince or the Lord, if you will, he must be accursed. Those words Jesus Christ were added to this verse later on. He must be accursed, a rebel to be destroyed, and the veracity of this translation can be demonstrated using a tool as simple as Strong's Exhausted Concordance. The denominational churches and the standard lexicons do not even parse the word Maranatha consistently. Some of them write mara some, some of them write Maranatha, some of them write Marana-tha, And I've seen all three in different lexicons. I think Marana Tha was Joseph Thayer, if memory serves me correctly. Well, they all insist, even though they can't even parse the word consistently, they all insist that it means, O Lord, come. But they cannot explain why it should have such a meaning. And we would assert that the Greek word anathema means accursed, which is the generally accepted meaning, and that maranatha is a Hebrew phrase made up of two identifiable Hebrew words, mara, and mara is found in places such as Strong's number 4751 and Strong's number 4785. And it means bitter, but it can also mean a rebel, And that is a Hebrew idiom. And the word natha, which can be found at Strong's number 5221 and 54... I'm sorry, 5421 and 5422 in his Hebrew lexicon. Natha, in the passive voice, means to be destroyed. Now, this may be subjective, However, it surely does elucidate not only Paul's great love for Christ, but also Paul's understanding of the nature of the enemies of Christ. The King James Version, leaving these words untranslated, hides the truth and neglects its obligation to relate the true meaning of the word. Our interpretation takes the meaning of Maranatha from the plain literal meanings of two common Greek words. I'm sorry, common Hebrew words. It's plainly literal. Anathema Maranatha, accursed, a rebel to be destroyed, is plainly literal. And Maranatha does not mean, O Lord,
1: come. And Paul was very familiar with how evil. These Edomites were constantly harassing him, and then he understood that we're better off if we just destroy them all.
0: Well, absolutely. He knew that they were going to be destroyed. He called, them, he called the Edomites vessels of destruction. In the closing verses of Romans chapter 9, comparing Jacob and Esau, he identified vessels of mercy and vessels of destruction. And he knew that the Edomites were all ultimately going to be destroyed, and and that's that that's another thing that that's um, come up recently is contention, even with some people that claim to be Christian identity, that Deuteronomy twenty three seven should not be corrected to read Aramaean, that the King James or Masoretic text version where it says, thou shalt not abhor an Edomite should be maintained. And that's just mad. Do you think? Now, Paul of Tarsus knew the law. And in fact, when one of the Pharisees corrected him for speaking poorly to the high priest, Paul quoted the law and said to that Pharisee, you're right. The law says thou shalt not um i forget the exact word but thou shalt not disrespect a leader of thy people or, or something that has that meaning i forget exactly what the law says but thou shalt not reproach a ruler of thy people i think that might be it and paul cited that i'm sorry Acts chapter 23, verse 5, thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. Because Paul didn't know that this priest was the high priest, and he said something to him, and, and one of the Pharisees, I think, slapped him, and Paul was corrected because he did transgress the law, the letter of the law. That's in Acts chapter 23. And and that is um that's at least 20 years after the resurrection that Paul understood that he should still keep that law, right? So, if Paul understood that he had to keep that law, why would he abhor an Edomite and call them accursed and call them vessels of destruction and repeat that God hated them? Paul obviously did not view deuteronomy 23 7 the way denominational churches and the jews view it today he obviously didn't or he would have known that he had to keep that law too but he didn't keep that law obviously paul didn't think that deuteronomy 23 7 said what these Masoretic text and, and translations think it says. Or these translations based on the Masoretic text. And even the Septuagint.
1: Paul's so, all for the uh, Holocaust then.
0: <laughs> right. Okay, well, well, that's just a digression. And we can move on to the second epistle to the Corinthians. And jump right to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and I'll try not to confuse it (laughs) when I talk. In 2 Corinthians 6.14, we read in the King James Version, being not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion has light with darkness? And we really have to consider this translation, because we would assert that it is wrong. It is wrong because it causes a serious conflict in Paul's own writing. Earlier, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul was discussing the dilemma of men and women who became Christians, but whose spouses did not accept the gospel. And Paul wrote in verse 10, And in verse 13, I'm only going to cite those two verses. And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. And the woman which has a husband that believes not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. So Paul is telling, and and it's demonstrable, that these two epistles were written only a few months apart from one another first corinthians and then second corinthians that the corinthians must have written a letter to paul after they received first corinthians and then he wrote second corinthians in order to further explain certain questions they must have had and that's obvious when you read the two epistles But we don't have the epistle that the Corinthians could have written to Paul. That's gone, right? So, is Paul contradicting himself in these two epistles? If, on one hand, he's telling Christians to stay married to pagan spouses, and on the other hand, he's telling them not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers, that's a contradiction. So can we imagine that Paul is contradicting himself in these two epistles, which were written only a few months apart from one another? And I would say that we certainly not, we should certainly not imagine that. Paul is not contradicting himself. And if Paul is not contradicting himself, then we have to go to the Greek language to try to determine what it was he was really saying. And if the Greek language, if an examination and an honest translation of the Greek language rectifies the contradiction so that it is no longer a contradiction, then that's the reading that we must accept. Because we can't imagine or we can't force an interpretation of Paul's words to make him contradict himself. That's not intellectually honest. We can't assume Paul contradicted himself and translate this passage the way we want. In 2 Corinthians 6.14, and and we're going to focus on, on the section that says, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. The King James translators rendered an adjective as a noun, which was apparently necessary for them to do so, I believe because they did not render the verb where they have unequally yoked. They did not render the verb as fully or as properly as they could have. While they also ignored the meaning of the verb where a different form of the same word was used in the setogent, Although in the septogent, it wasn't a verb. Admittedly, this opening sentence of this verse, Second Corinthians six fourteen, is very difficult to translate in few words, although it only contains four Greek words. You can't always end up with the same amount of words in English when you're translating Greek. I mean, usually it's very often I should say it is possible, but very often it's not. So the Greek words "me genesta, that means do not become. And the word heterozuguntes is where we're going to focus. And that means yoked together with aliens. And I'm going to explain that. And then the adjective apistois, which the King James Version translates as a noun, is translated as an adjective in the Christianity New Testament as untrustworthy so in the christianian new testament these four greek words are translated do not become yoked together with untrustworthy aliens where the king james version has be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers and the denominational churches usually interpret this to be a religious admonition, which would have Paul conflict with his own statements, such as those in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which we have just cited, where he advised men and women already married to unbelievers to continue in their marriage. And that makes Paul out to be a liar, this is not a religious statement. And we hope to make that evident upon an examination of those terms, heterozugio, which is the verb, and apistos, which is the adjective. The verb heterozygio appears nowhere else in the New Testament nor in the Septuagint. However, the corresponding adjective Heterozygous does appear in the Septuagint in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 19, where the King James Version itself has, Thou shalt not let thy cattle gender with a diverse kind. And in the Septuagint Greek, the sentence is, Takatene su, which is your cattle, your cattle u katokusaice u means do not let gender and that verb u o- means no or not and the verb catocusice implies the act of sexual intercourse right so do not let your cattle gender and then there's that adjective heterozugo which is heterozygous, which means with a diverse kind, and the idea of being yoked was already implicit, so the English translators did not repeat it. The idea of being yoked is implicit in the act of sexual intercourse, that is translated as gender in the or gender with in the King James. And is it, it is, um, is explicitly trans, transmitted in the Greek meaning of that verb katochusis, right? Which is katochuo, which is to perform sexual intercourse or to lay together like you would lay with a woman or however you want to define it. So they didn't repeat the word yoked there but they got the important part of the word with a diverse kind, and the idea of yoked was already implicit in that word gender. Brenton's English, as it was translated from the Greek, varies very little from that King James Version English in Leviticus 1919, which was translated from the Hebrew, and Brenton's Greek has this word, heterozygous, an adjective, in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 19. So, don't you think we should translate that word heterozygous, or the verb form of it, heterozygeo, the same way here in First Corinthians chapter 6? Because Leviticus 19, 19 tells us what it means. But the Component meanings of heterozugus or heterozugio also tell us what it means. So while the Liddell and Scott definition for the verb heterozugio that appears here in the New Testament, it follows the King James Version, to be yoked in unequal partnership. The the Liddell and Scott definition for the adjective heterozugus as it appears in the Septuagint, is coupled with an animal of diverse kind and with people that can only mean to be coupled with someone of another race. So it is evident that both the King James Version and Liddell and Scott are attempting to convince us that the verb form of the word somehow has a totally different meaning than the adjective. I don't accept that. I can't accept that. Furthermore, this word being a compound word, heterozougous, or the verb heterozygeo. Heterozougous is a compound word from heteros, and heteros means another or different. And Zugus, which is a yoke, Zugio means to be yoked to something. So hetero-zugeo means to be yoked to something different and not to be unequally yoked in any other sense. The word heteros, describing flesh, was in the epistle of Jude translated as strange flesh in the King James Version. I've already discussed this simple concept in these presentations, that different forms of the same basic word must share the same basic meaning, whether they be noun, verb, or adjective. In English, the words call is a noun, to call is a verb, and calling, or caller, or called, all words which can serve as nouns, verbs, or adjectives. They all share the same basic meaning relating to the same action. So if the adjective heterozugous means coupled with an animal of diverse kind, then the verb heterozugio means to be coupled with an animal of diverse kind. So it doesn't mean unequally yoked in any religious sense.
1: He's Otherwise, keeping to his theme that he only cares about Israel according to the flesh, right? Absolutely. And he's saying stay away from alien races.
0: There are other ways to say stay away from or don't be joined to people of other beliefs. There are other ways to say that. Why would Paul use this particular term from the Septuagint, Although he used it as a verb here, which is... An agricultural term describing two different animals joined together with the same yoke. Why, if you were going to plow your field, would you take a horse and an oxen and make them yoke partners? Or a camel and a donkey? Why would you do that? Yahweh had a law which set an example not to yoke your animals with animals of a diverse kind, Leviticus 19, 19, chapter 19, verse 19. And Paul took that particular word and put it in this epistle to the Corinthians. And it's talking about race. And as we proceed through this chapter, we will find that it is talking about race. So for that reason, Here in the Christianian New Testament, for this verb, heterozoukio, I have yoked together with aliens. Preferring the idea that the verb as it was used by Paul surely bears the same meaning that the adjective did in the Greek scriptures of the Septuagint, which Paul so often quoted verbatim. So he understood the Greek of the Septuagint. This word, must also be trans- contrasted with another word from the from the the noun zugus, which is a yoke, and that word is suzugas, and that's used in the New Testament only once, by Paul in Philippians chapter four verse three, and Ludell and Scott define suzugas as yoked together, paired, and idiomatically. Ahescalus, and they give this example, Ahescalus used the phrase suzugus homaliahi as wedded union of a couple of the same kind that are yoked together. As a feminine substantive, suzugus was used by Euripides to describe a wife. Your yoke partner is your wife, or as a masculine substantive, it was used to describe a yoke fellow or a comrade in the Iliad and Aristotle. So that's suzugus, to be yoked together with somebody is all suzugus means, to be with the yoke, meaning to be in the same yoke as somebody else. So of marriage, speaking of marriage, Christ used the corresponding verb. Suzugnumi. This is a tongue twister, right? Suzugnumi, Strong's number 4801. He used it at Matthew chapter 19, verse 6, and Mark chapter 10, verse 9. Speaking of marriage, so the prefix su means with or together, and heteros means other or other than or different. And zougas, a yoke, is anything which joins two bodies. According to Liddell and Scott, and it is commonly a yoke, very often in scripture, and and there are five examples from the New Testament in Matthew chapter 11, Acts chapter 15, and Galatians chapter five, verse one, and first Timothy chapter six, verse one. Paul used that word yoke, zougas. So if Paul wanted to tell us not to be yoked together with the unfaithful. Suzugus was the word to use. Suzugus and Apistois, that the unfaithful or the unbelievers. Suzugus apistois would be the phrase to use. That's all he would have to use. But rather he was clearly le- using heterozugeo. As Heterozugus was in the Septuagint, and he was telling us not to be yoked together with untrustworthy aliens. I'll briefly describe that word, apistos, which I've translated as untrustworthy. The word apistos is an adjective, which Liddell has got defined, not to be trusted, not trusty, distrusted, or faithless because it could also mean faithless. Yet it is treated in the King James Version as a substantive in this verse, as a noun, and translated merely as unbelievers. The Christogenian New Testament has the word as an adjective, which is what it is. If Paul wanted to use this word as the substantive, a simple article would have cleared up any ambiguity but there is no article at all in these words. You could still have a substantive without an article. That's very clear in the grammatical context. But I've chosen to render the participle verb as a, the as the substantive. But in truth... I would have read both I would read both words together in that manner, as they seem to be interdependent, even though the participle is nominative and the, dated, the adjective is in the dated case, even in spite of that. So with all this, I would assert that another way to translate this clause from Greek is, do not become yoked together with those of other races who are not to be trusted which is also rather literal. Or if one would insist that apistos is the substantive, that's fine too. I would translate it as do not become yoked with the faithless of other races, of diverse kinds, which is also literal. Either way represents a message that is consistent with all scripture and both ways express the true meanings of the original words. So with this in mind, we may better understand the context of Paul's statements just a few verses later, going from 2 Corinthians 6.14, we're going to go to 2 Corinthians 6.17, where the King James Version unjustly adds a word, Thing to the text, and I don't know if you have anything to say before I get into that.
1: Well, it's just interesting how how the translators they tried to get around it, all, that they didn't want to completely order it. They they just thought, okay, what can we do here? How can we get around this? Maybe we'll make this adjective, this adjective into a noun, and we'll just swap the order. So, so you wonder just how are they doing this? Would describe think okay look over his shoulder and you know call the uh, head scribe over and say look what do you want me to do with this and you know it'd explain it and then he'd say okay translate it this way that way you know it's faith rather than race it just makes you wonder how they did it all you know
0: well well right it's difficult to translate these four words either word can be translated as the substantive but the adjective is in the dative case so it's the adjective that when you move it into English should take the preposition of course the preposition doesn't exist in the Greek but the preposition is implied by the dative case so in English it's the adjective that would normally receive the preposition with or to in in the dative case or in so the way it's translated in the christogenian New Testament, in as few words as I could translate it, is not 100% grammatically perfect, but it does 100% express the meaning which Paul intended. So, with the alternate translations that I offer in my notes, they are... Where it says, do not become yoked with the faithless of other races, that is literal and that is grammatically accurate. And in order to express the term heterozugeo, the verb, I had to write yoked with of other races where i opted for a more literal expression in the Christogenian new testament that that more literally keeps the meaning of heterozugeo where i have yoked together with untrustworthy aliens so we could argue about the grammar all day long which word is really the substantive but i'm still going to translate it in a way that reflects the full meaning of zugeo because if paul wanted to simply describe something yoked with unbelievers he could have used the shorter word suzugeo which he does elsewhere in his epistles in other contexts we have to ask ourselves why he used heterozugio and we get our answer from the Septuagint, from the law, Leviticus 19.19. 19. And that's the only place to get the answer, where we stay with scripture. That would be my contention. So I hope all that kind of makes sense. I don't know if you have anything else.
1: Well, I was just going to ask, in, in terms of that timeline, you know, back in – uh. Would it be 50 AD, roughly, something okay. like that, maybe later? What what would Paul mean by um, staying away from aliens, like in terms of Carimps, the Corinthians and the Dorians? Would he mean, like, if some Athenian came in and tried to teach some other doctrine, he's, he's warning about that, or someone claiming to be from this tribe or this race? It, you know, in that timeline, what would you think he would mean?
0: Well, untrustworthy... Or faithless are those who are outside of the faith. And they're not to be trusted. The faith is not for aliens. And Paul understood. And he reflects that understanding at the very end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, where he said that those who do not love the Lord Jesus, they must be accursed, a rebel to be destroyed. Paul understood in the context of the first century, in the world of Judeans and Greeks, that the gospel of Christ was going to separate the wheat and the tares. So if you rejected the gospel at that time, you would be counted as one of the faithless, as Paul says elsewhere in his epistles, (laughs) as one of those who don't have the faith at all. All yeah, the, the gospel aliens.
1: is the only true way to separate the wheat and the tares, right?
0: Yes, sir. Yes, it is. And that's the teaching of Christ. And that's the only way that men can tell. Now, God himself knows what we all are, right? And there's no fooling God. But if you accept the gospel message, not Jesus as it's taught today in the churches, if you accept the gospel message which Paul of Tarsus taught, then it was expected that you were a wheat. And if you reject it, then it was expected that you were a tare. And even if you weren't a tare, you would be counted with the tares because in the end, Yahweh God will sort them out. They're already sorted out. So that was Paul's attitude. That's the attitude he expresses here. That's the attitude he expresses in... 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and, and throughout all his epistles.
1: And you've said how um, Roman writers said that the Christians were becoming, um, what was the word, unsocial, that they were starting to separate themselves. Right. So, so clearly it worked.
0: Absolutely. They were starting to separate themselves from the world. Separating yourself from the world, you do separate yourself from a, a lot of your own brethren because they are caught up in the world and they prefer the world and they're in a state of sin. But separating yourself from the world as a Christian, you do separate yourself from the other races and from the, from the wolves, from the Jews that are the enemies of Christ, or at least you should. That's the purpose of Christian separation then and now. It should stand today as well that we develop our own communities of, of fellow identity Christians and stay with them and, and our social circles are with them and, and even if our communities were big enough, even our work would be with them. We would work and trade and barter with one another before we did with any outsider. Even if we have to go to the pagan meat market once in a while, as Paul described in Romans 14, right? Even if we have to do that, we should stick to our own first. As Paul told the Romans that we should prefer one another. And and the King James actually befuddled that translation. It didn't translate the word strongly enough, in my opinion. So understanding that 2 Corinthians 6.14 is telling... Paul is telling the Corinthians not to be yoked together with the other races because they are not of the faith. So they are untrustworthy. Apistos. I render it as untrustworthy. But if you understand the Greek word, and and this is where it's hard as a translator to translate anything without notes, because the original Christogene New Testament, it's published without notes. My notes, I can't get into one book. Where do I stop? And I have 121 podcasts on Paul of Tarsus, and I would bet the average is about 12 printed pages. So, so that's 120, that, that's 1,500 pages, eight and a half by 11 pages. I can't get that into one volume, right? So I have to just put out a translation. So Apistos is also faithless, which isn't somebody that just doesn't believe. It's somebody that doesn't have the faith. It also describes somebody for whom the faith is not. And, and we'll get to that, too, that Paul made that expression in Second Thessalonians chapter 3. And, and the King James screwed that up. So that, that's a concept that we won't talk about for another week or two. But we will get there, God willing. So that word apistos also describes people who are outside or without the faith because Christianity is not for them. Edomites would be included in that category because the gospel is to separate the wheat and the tares. And the true gospel of Christ does separate the wheat and the tares. So we move on three verses forward to 2 Corinthians Verse chapter 6 verse 17 but we have to understand this in in the context of what paul said in verse 14 not to be yoked with untrustworthy aliens so the king james version adds this word thing to the text but the christigenia new testament reads the passage 2nd corinthians 6 17 as follows come out from the midst of them And be separated, says the prince or the Lord, and do not be joined to the impure. Now, that's where the King James Version adds thing. It says join to the unclean or do not touch the unclean thing. But that word thing doesn't belong in the text. It was added. It's in italics in the King James Version. It says, and do not be joined to the impure, and I will admit you. I would assert here that the reference to the impure directly refers to the subject earlier earlier in the passage, which is them, where it says, come out from the midst of them. It's talking about the unclean or the impure. Do not be joined to the impure in the Christianian New Testament. And, and this passage is a paraphrase from Isaiah chapter 52, where it says, The Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart ye, depart ye, Isaiah fifty-two eleven. Go ye out from thence, touch no unclean thing. And once again, the King James translators added that word thing. It's in italics, but it's not in the Hebrew. It should say, and touch no unclean, or I would translate it as touch not the unclean. Go ye out from the midst of her, be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. Now, the vessels of the Lord are actually the Adamic bodies that hold the spirit of Yahweh. That's another topic entirely. But once again, in that passage, the King James Version added that word thing to the text. The Brown Driver Briggs Hebrew Lexicon acknowledges that the form of the Hebrew word in that passage for unclean. Strong's number 2931 is a masculine adjective, so you really can't translate it as thing, and that it describes someone unclean, either ethically or religiously, citing Isaiah chapter 6 verse 5, and citing Ezekiel 22 and Job 14, or someone unclean ritually, again speaking of persons, Citing Deuteronomy chapters 12 and 15, Leviticus chapter 22, and Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 2. That same Hebrew word appears in all those passages. In that context, speaking of people. So where Paul had written in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Come out from the midst of them and be separated. He was referring to people just as Isaiah was and it is only a further admonition where it says and do not be joined to the impure or the unclean. This in turn was written to clarify what Paul meant where he wrote just a few verses earlier do not become yoked with the faithless of other races which I had given as one plausible and literal translation of those words, and therefore we see an interpretation which describes Paul as having offered a narrative that is fully consistent with all of his other statements, that 2 Corinthians 6.14 does not conflict with his statements concerning marriage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Because in 2 Corinthians, he's not talking about unbelievers. He's talking about the faithless, those outside the faith, those of other races for whom Christ did not come. In this same light, I don't know if you have anything before we move on from 2 Corinthians chapter 6,
1: (laughs) Well, you you can just see looking around us that the result of not listening to Paul's warning now, we're overrun. You know, we've been Christian for well over a thousand years. And as soon as we let these we start yoking with these aliens, Christianity is gradually gone. And and even if you believe the um, Catholic version, they don't even uphold it. They, they say, oh, you should respect all religions. Well, well, if they really believe this, they would they would. um they wouldn't say that, right? They would say um, no other religion should be part of our country. So, so even they even contradict themselves.
0: Well, yeah, right. They do contradict themselves all the time. That the Roman Catholic Church never believed that Father was a literal father. Never believed that Abraham was a literal forefather, as Paul wrote in Romans chapter four. Never believed that seed was literal children or offspring never believed that the house of Israel was a literal house or family that they rejected all those meanings of all those terms and then we get to places like second corinthians 6:14 where we have words that have very explicit meanings like heterozygio and they just ignore the, the explicit meaning they totally ignore the explicit meaning of the term and translate it in in a manner that shrouds that meaning, that that doesn't reveal it. That is in keeping with all of their other misunderstandings, purposeful or otherwise, of of father and seed and, and house so that they're consistently hypocritical. They consistently misinterpret or mistranslate words and phrases in order to support their universalism. But the scripture is not universal. The scripture is only meant for one particular race of people. So in the same light, there is another adjective which is mistranslated in the king james and other versions of second corinthians and and that's in second corinthians chapter 13 verse 5 where paul beckoned his readers and the king james version has examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith prove your own selves know ye not your own selves how that jesus christ is in you except ye be reprobates." And that should be unless ye be reprobates in more modern English. And that word reprobate is adokimos, And adokimus is an adjective, which is translated as a noun here in the King James Version, where the word is rendered reprobates. It should have been red- rendered as an adjective, and it means spurious. Adokimus means Spurious. The intermediate Liddell and Scott lexicon defines the word to mean not standing the test. Spurious, properly of coin, metaphorically of persons, rejected as false, disreputable, reprobate, etc. But a coin is spurious when it is not pure, when it is mixed with base metals, So you take gold and copper and mix them together and try to pass it off as a gold coin for its original value, for the value it should have, when indeed it doesn't have that value. A coin is spurious when it is not pure, and therefore I would cross-reference this verse to Hebrews chapter 12, where Paul wrote, But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards and not sons. Only bastards are spurious. Here, discussing bastards and the impure or the unclean, it might be relevant to go back to Acts chapter 10 and briefly discuss what Yahweh God had cleansed on the cross of Christ. But in the future, this should probably we should probably do this as a proof of its own. It further on in the series, it, it merits a proof of its own for various purposes because it shows the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the children of Israel in Christ. But I thought it was fitting to discuss it here after this discussion of second Corinthians.
1: So so what, what he's saying is we all have Jesus Christ in us, except you bastards, essentially, right?
0: Absolutely. Unless you're spurious, meaning unless you're a bastard. You don't have the spirit of God in you when you're a bastard, that's why it says a bastard shall not enter the congregation of Yahweh. Not even to the 10th generation. And that's just at a sort of idiom meaning forever. Because a bastard after 10 generations is still a bastard. He's not a 10th generation bastard. Every bastard is a first generation, first generation bastard. Every bastard is a different kind that Yahweh God did not create a different mixture of of genes, genetic material that God did not create. So in Acts chapter 10, Peter was shown a vision of beasts. And as the vision is completed, and in what happened to Peter subsequently, it is revealed that where Peter was commanded to arise and eat certain unclean beasts, the actual signification was that he should not reject certain men. So we read in verse 14, but Peter said, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Now that's important that Peter said common or unclean. So we see the answer in verse 15. And the voice spoke unto him again the second time, What God has cleansed, call not thou common. So what God has cleansed, Peter was being told not to call common. So even though Peter was concerned with things both common and unclean, in the answer we see that Yahweh God was only concerned with what is common And that's an important distinction, which is missed by denominational churches and translators as it relates to men. What is common, or sometimes the word "coinous" was translated as profane, referred to things which were soiled or tainted, but which could be cleansed. And ceremonial, ceremonially purified by a priest. But what is unclean, or acathartis, is unclean according to the law, and it can never be cleansed. For example, swine is unclean according to the law. And no ceremony or cleansing ritual could ever make it clean so that it could be sacrificed on the altar or eaten by men. However, cattle which are clean but which were mishandled in some manner could be considered profane, but a priest could purify them in a ritual. When the children of Israel were put off into captivity and alienated from Yahweh, they were considered from that time common or profane, and it is they who were cleansed on the cross of Christ. Nobody else was cleansed on the cross of Christ, and we will elaborate on this later in this series, but Christ did not clean any of the other races, which were never clean according to the law. Once this concept is understood from the Old Testament, It can be understood in the New Testament. Many of the allegories concerning Israel are also better understood in that same manner. Yahweh God would not cleanse pigs, just as he would not cleanse other races of so-called
1: people. And this all ties back into the beginning, the saints, right? That the saints are cleansed.
0: Absolutely. And, and this ties right back to the beginning of where we started, that the saints are holy, they're sanctified. Who sanctified them? Did they sanctify themselves? No. Yahweh God sanctified them on the cross of Christ. So accepting the gospel of Christ is really just a recognition of your sanctification and Understanding the compulsion, if you love me, keep my commandments, to adjust your behavior according to that sanctification. That's all it is. That's the significance of accepting the gospel.
1: And today, most people accept or or the Orthodox one or whatever denomination they accept them as the one who cleanses them or the one who could make him a saint, right?
0: Right. That they, that they think that that baptism ritual, which is no longer necessary, and, and that's a whole other story, but I don't know if it's fitting for, for this series. The, the baptism ritual is no longer necessary, but they've clung to that baptism ritual. That professional priesthood has clung to that baptism ritual so that they could make you think that they cleansed you and you're beholden to them. So when you leave your church because you're upset with something or because you wander astray and you go join another church, you can't become a Southern Baptist and quit and go join the Church of Christ without getting re-baptized by a pastor of the Church of Christ. They won't allow you to just become a member of the congregation. You have to get baptized again. You got to have it done their way. They have to do it. So being baptized once isn't even enough for them, unless you're baptized wanting to stay in the same church all your life. Perhaps that might work. But then again, there are Baptists that I've seen get baptized repeatedly because it makes them feel good. And that's just a cleansing ritual at the hands of man. That's not the cleansing the Christians have in Christ. Not at all. They substitute rituals for truth. They've done it since time immemorial. Okay, well, that's about all I have to say for this evening. I, I mean, I could explain the whole baptism thing and why I believe like I do, because that's what Peter said. I, I mean, when you look at, when you look at, and, and I'll do it, I'll give it five minutes, right? Is that acceptable? Uh, it, in First Peter chapter 10, that event happened three years after the resurrection, approximately, three years later. And it might be a little longer than that because the, the, the chronology is not clear until we get to a certain event in Acts chapter 12 where Herod Agrippa I dies. And we know that that happened, I believe, in 43 A.D., So that would be 10 years after the resurrection. But it seems that Acts chapter 10 is at least three years after. There are some gaps in Acts, right? So it could be longer. So at least three years after the resurrection, Peter sees this vision and is told in a vision to arise and eat, kill and eat. And Peter would not eat unclean animals three years after the resurrection, So if Yahweh God, the Romans ate pork all the time and shellfish and all sorts of things that were forbidden to the Hebrews, if Christ taught his apostles that they could start eating pork, don't you think Peter would have already been eating pork if he thought pork was food? He didn't even think pork was food. He said, I've never eaten anything common or unclean, and this is years after the resurrection. So Peter's shown his vision and he goes to the household of Cornelius. He understood, and it must have been the correct understanding because the later scriptures bear it out. He understood that the next morning or maybe that afternoon, I forget exactly how it goes in Acts chapters 10 and 11. He understood that when those uncircumcised men from the household of Cornelius knocked on his door, he understood that the vision was meant so that he would accept those men because the Judeans would not have any business with the uncircumcised at that level, right? I mean, they had to obey the Roman authorities. They were subjects of Rome, but they wouldn't do day-to-day business and, and have friendly intercourse and eat with Romans and things like that, right? So... When those men knocked on the door and asked Peter to go with them to their master's house, Peter would have never wanted to do that. But he had that vision, and he understood that he should, that that was what the vision meant. So he gets to the household of Cornelius, and he makes the observation after he preaches the gospel to them, and and they all believed it and accepted it he made the observation that he explains later in Acts chapter 11 that the Holy Spirit descended upon them and that they received the Holy Spirit before they had water baptism. But he didn't understand the significance right away. So he baptized them in water. After they received the Holy Spirit, they already received the Holy Spirit. He didn't understand the significance right away. He baptized them in water. But then he had time to reflect on what happened. And he, the results of that reflection come in his profession in Acts chapter 11, that when they received the gospel, the Holy Spirit descended on them. And what did he do right from there? Did he say that now it's okay to eat ham sandwiches? No, he didn't say that. What he said was that he recalled the words of Christ that John baptized in water, but but you will be baptized in fire and the Holy Spirit. And those words are found in Acts chapter one. So right there is where Peter realized that the water baptism really wasn't necessary because that was for John, that Christ baptized in the Holy Spirit. That is the last time water baptism is mentioned in the scripture. The last time. It's not mentioned again. So what happened? Was it okay to eat ham sandwiches from that point on? Or do we understand that we should forsake water baptism from that point on because that was for John and Christ baptized in the Holy Spirit? That's what Peter explained. Acts chapter 11. So we still don't eat ham sandwiches, but we don't need to be baptized anymore either. And when we get to, I believe it's Acts chapter 19 in verse 4, Paul said, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, which is on Christ. Okay. It says, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, but that doesn't really mean that they were baptized in water. Paul said in Romans chapter 6 that they should be baptized in his death. In Acts chapter 18, Priscilla and Aquila meet apollos for the first time at the end of acts chapter 18 and it says this man was instructed in the way of the lord and being fervent in the spirit he spoke and taught diligently the things of the lord knowing only the baptism of john so apollos was going around baptizing people in water and he began to speak boldly in the synagogue whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard him, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. So we can't understand, we we can't accept that that the perfect way of God is the baptism of John in water because there's a greater baptism in the understanding of Christ. That doesn't mean that you get baptized in water in a different way. That means that you're baptized in his death in, in the understanding that Paul expresses in Romans chapter 6 and 7.
1: And the fire, would that be the chastisement? That...
0: Well, absolutely. The fiery trials of your faith that Peter warned about in First Peter chapter 1. And that's how he understood that. That the faith was going to be, maintaining the faith was going to be difficult for Christians. But it became easy for Christians when they could stay pagans in the 4th century. (laughs) But that's not the faith. That's Catholicism and and a whole bunch of artificial layers of paganism in the name of Christianity, which aren't Christian. And they had to, for the priests to maintain control of the the people that attended their churches— They had to have this system of rituals, which they fabricated or maintained from the Old Testament up to the time of John the Baptist. Water baptism, confirmation, Holy Communion, and and all of these church rituals are all bullshit, I guess that was more than five minutes, but that's okay. I said what I thought I had to say.
1: So which one are we going on to next? Would it be Galatians it's, or the uh, epistles of John and James? Oh,
0: no, we got to get through the rest of the epistles of Paul. There's still a lot of mistranslations to cover, in, in my opinion. <laughs> okay. So we're going to be here for, for a minute, at least one more week, at least one more long program, maybe two. I don't know. I I don't know until I start to look, right? I don't know what I'm going to find until I start to look. Most of this is from, I I mean, probably 75% of this is from notes that I did years ago and, and, or in my commentaries and and I'm trying to reword it and make it a little fresh and I've added some concepts to it that that I hadn't expressed in the past here and there or, or tried to clarify things and, put it in simpler language so it's not really new but it, it's just uh, i'm refining some of my work i've already done for a different purpose right which is this series it, it's hard to make it um perfectly understandable to someone who doesn't know anything about christianity i can't do that that's you can't start here but that's okay that's your job <laughs>
1: that's your job <laughs> yeah.
0: when you make your videos
1: yeah <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I should be releasing part four this Friday, so i 'm gradually getting there with the videos uh, but um but I've got really good feedback on them. Uh, they seem to be easy to follow and and they kind of get new people into it who hopefully can you know come to christogenia and get stuck in reading. You know, because you've got to study yourself to gain a true understanding, right?
0: Absolutely, you do have to study yourself, and, and too many people, too, too many people come to Christianity and, and they read only selected materials, or or they acquire a surface knowledge, and, and they run with it, and they usually end up going off into ditches because they don't study the original material for themselves. Yeah, you have to read the Bible cover to cover several times in, in order to really understand it. And, and you should probably read different versions of it, doing that, and compare them just to know what's there and what's not there, and, and to understand the, the overall narrative. And, and if you're ever going to be a teacher, there, there are clowns out there that claim to be teachers that have only read citations from other sources that have never actually sat and read through the classics, and if you really want to understand the classics, and if you really want to understand the the prophets in 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 and the fulfillments of the prophecies, you have to actually sit and read through all the prophets several times and then read through the classical histories and and if you don't do all of that groundwork, you might be at a student we don't all have time for that, right but if you really want to understand the entire narrative, you really have to check out the source materials for yourself. I don't ever want to be just believed. I want people to take my, what I say and go back and look at the lexicons and, and look at the, the histories to understand that that is what's really there. And that's you have a much better substance and foundation that way than just believing we don't all have time for that.
1: Yeah, and if uh, CI is ever to really awaken, you need people to keep spreading it, but they've got to have the substance and knowledge to to be able to explain it to friends, family, and you know, even people on the internet. Right.
0: And too many friends and 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 ex-friends, right? They've gone off into ditches because they really haven't looked through all the source material or or mastered the source material. Yet they come up with these, or, or they're infected by these ideas sometimes from traditional denominational Christianity, and and they cling to to orthodox heresies or Roman Catholic heresies, but because they think it makes sense in in the light of the history of Christianity. But what they don't understand is that Christianity, at as denominational Christianity and traditional Christianity have never been apostolic christianity they were right about a lot of things but they've never been right they've always taught replacement theology they've always taught certain heresies that aren't found in the scriptures (coughs) Or, or they stop short in the scriptures So so they're Acts chapter 2 Christians. Oh, I'm an Acts chapter 2 Christian, meaning that they could speak in tongues and they all have to be baptized in water. But they're not Acts chapter 28 Christians, meaning they don't have a real full understanding of the course of learning that the apostles were on after the resurrection, after the ascension of Christ. He did not leave them with perfect knowledge. He couldn't impart to them perfect knowledge because he only gave them information, certain information, on a need-to-know basis. If they had perfect knowledge from the beginning, then his plan would not have come to fruition as he planned it. We're given information on a need-to-know basis. If Peter had perfect knowledge at the ascension of Christ— And when he gave his dissertation in Acts chapter 2, then why would he need that vision in Acts chapter 10? So what Peter had in Acts chapter 2, even under the influence of the Holy Spirit, what Peter had was the information that God wanted him to have. And he acted on that. But in Acts chapter 10, it's obvious that he was still learning. So none of us are ever perfect at any given time, because we should all still be learning. Okay, that's probably enough of that rant. Thank you for being here. Praise Yahweh.
1: Yeah, brilliant, Bill. Uh, Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the European race. Thank you. Cheers.
0: Take care. Good night.